Our sermon text this morning comes from John chapter 17. I'll read the first 12 verses. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. When I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept And none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, dear Heavenly Father, we receive this, your word, with thanksgiving. And as we take it up, we ask you to open our hearts that we may hear you speaking to us. Give us grace to believe your word, adding faith to faith. Teach our minds with its truth. Conform our wills to its commands. Assure our hearts with its comfort. Awaken us to its warnings. And this for the glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the health of his church. Amen. You may be seated. What is God saying to us out of John 17? This is an amazing chapter. Um, And I want to think about it in terms of watching a movie at home on your DVD player. I like the movies that come with a commentary track. I watch it one time as the movie, and then a lot of times I'll watch it the second time, and you hear the director and the writer talking about, Oh, you know, in this scene, we put the, the bad guy uh, in this red booth to show how angry he is in the restaurant right by the front window. And the light outside is blinking on his face. So he has this red, red, red on his face shows how angry he is. And then the guy across from him, he's sitting there in that blue shirt. He's playing with the ice in his glass. And he's so cool. and He's calming things down. And, you know, they're doing all these things in the movie. And you go, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I like to see what's going on behind the scenes. Well, John 17 is something like that. We see what's going on behind the scenes when we hear the son talking to the father about what they've been up to this whole time and what they're about to do and what they're going to do. And it is, a, it is a, an amazing kind of insight into the, the eternal counsels of God. What an astonishing uh, thing, to, thing to see. Um, John 17 is something like the director's commentary on the life of Jesus. And, and more than that, it's like a commentary on the life of on life, the universe, and everything. Uh, Because John 17, we hear this conversation between the Father and the Son, the two persons of the eternal trinity. They're in a dialogue about the eternal counsels of God. So I I want us to think about the trinity, because the trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is really the engine of all life, of all creation, of everything that goes on. 
Um, now, a lot of times when we think about the Trinity, we kind of go, okay, this will be boring. Uh, you look at the, uh, it's just a doctrine. Uh, it's, go, it's what separates us from the cults. It's what separates us from the Jews and from Islam. Okay, they don't have this down right, and we do. And you look at things like uh, the Athanasian Creed. When's the last time you spent some time with the Athanasian Creed from about the year 500? It starts to sound like trigonometry. Uh, whoever will be saved before all things is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet, there are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also, there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet, there are not three almighties, but one almighty. Well, you get the point. On and on it goes. And, it be, you know, you kind of, you're taking notes in the back of the class. And you say, okay, okay, I get it. Now, there are very good reasons for this kind of creed. And that, that creed came out of a time in the church when they needed to say these things because there were people who weren't saying them. And so, good, you know, amen. We need to keep the Athanasian creed and not drift away from it. And we need to keep a robust doctrine of the Trinity. But it's not the tr don't think about the Trinity as a doctrine because it is a dynamic and living reality. And it is the it is the force. It's the dynamic that makes all life and everything possible. The Trinity is not just a set of definitions or a kind of a cool power doctrine that so that we don't get confused with cults and Judaism and Islam. The doctrine of the Trinity actually becomes a dear consolation to us. You think of all life and all being and everything in everything that God has given us in terms of an outgrowth of the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father and the way that the Father has gives all things to the Son and the way that the Son receives them from the Father and renders them back to him in all obedience and, and the mutual glorification. This dynamic is what's going on. And we will see how our part actually derives from the nature and free choices of this triune God. For instance, consider the question, what is the gospel? If, we, if I were to ask the normal Christian on the street, can you explain the gospel to me? Many, many would say John 3.16. God has loved the world. And because God loved the world, he gave his son. And then whoever believes in the son will have everlasting life. Now, that's good. I want you to believe that. And that's true. But that is the gospel from kind of the world's perspective. It's about the world, and it's about God's love for the world. John 3.16 gospel. There's another way to look at the gospel, and that's John 3.35. The Father has loved the Son and has given all things into his hand. God so loved the Son that he gave him a, his only created world that so that the Son might receive the world from the Father and redeem it and render the kingdom back to the Father at the end. That's another way to look at the gospel. 
In the first way, the gospel is about us. It's about the world. It's about our need and our lostness and God's love for us. And that's true. I don't want to lose that or forget that. People say, you mean you don't believe John 3? Yes, yes. But I also, but God also gave us John 3.35. And this, I think, is even more fundamental because before there was creation, let's say God decided not to create the world. He didn't have to. It was a free choice. But would God always have loved the Son? Would the Father always have loved the Son and always been glorifying the Son and always been giving Him all things? Would the Son always be rendering glory to the Father and always be receiving from the Father? Yes. That is even more fundamental to the nature of reality. And so there's two sides, at least two perspectives to the gospel. And John 17, let's confess here, it's deep. Okay, we're only going to touch on a few things. Don't pretend that you're going to know about John 17 from what I say today. But uh, I do want to point this out because the, the John 3.35 gospel is unlimited by time. The Father has always loved the Son. And in the relationship of the Trinity, the Father has always been giving himself to the Son and always glorified the Son. And the Son has always received from the Father and given back to the Father and glorified the Father. So this is not a doctrine about the Trinity that we need to make these affirmations and these these denials and make sure that we get it all checked off correctly. It is that, but it's a lot more. It is the nature and foundation and ground of all reality. It's about the dynamic of eternal love and self-giving and mutual glorification of the three persons of the Godhead. And John's gospel is uh, stands apart from the other gospels in the, in the way that John treats these things. Um, and we're only going to treat a tiny fraction of what there is to say about this today. There are thick books in small print about uh, distinctive characteristics of John's gospel, his emphasis on the temple and Jesus' long discourses with the Jew, and the way John pairs word and sign, and uh, perhaps more than any other distinctive, John teaches the things that we learn nowhere else about the dynamic of the Trinity in the way he talks about the Father and the Son. Uh, just think about some of those things. I went through and picked a few of them out. Uh, this tells us about what's going on between the Father and the Son whether we're there or not, okay? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. We've already touched that one, but how about this one? Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What's that tell us about the Father and the Son? The Father is giving things to the Son. And then how the Father relates to the Son and the Son to the Father? Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. The Father gives to the Son, the Father teaches to the Son, and the Son does nothing on His own authority. Um, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Jesus says, the Father is showing me what He is doing, and I'm doing what He has given me to do. For, Jesus says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. It's the Father first who raises the dead and gives them life, and so also the Son, in obedience, uh, raises uh, and gives life to whom He will. Then here's one. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's kind of a surprising mystery, but there's the Son who has entered into the incarnation, who has entered into life, and He is the one who's given judgment. That's worth pondering. I'm not sure I can, I can uh, explain about all that, how that works. Uh, the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
Now we're right on the edge of mystery. The son uncreated, the son co-eternal, but the son's life derives from the father. We talk about the begotten, that the son's, that it's unique to the son to be begotten of the father. And here's, the, here's, here's where it says the father has life in himself and he is granted to the son to have life in himself. How does that relationship work? We are standing at the edge. I mean, John shows us stuff that you know, I'm not sure we need to know. But it's it's uh, it's an amazing kind of a kind of an insight into what the relationship is between the Father, Son, and Spirit, God of all the universe, forever. Then, of course, the way that we relate to the Son and thereby to the Father is all bound up in the Trinity. Uh, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We relate to the Father either in wrath or through belief in the Son. And it's the, it's the Father and the Son that determine uh, our, own, our, our destiny. Uh, Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Christ, there's Christ doing what the will of the Father is, receiving the belief of those whom the Father has given him, and then raising them up on the last day. So it's the Father and the Son involved in our resurrection and our ultimate glorification. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So it's belief in the Son that allows us not to experience the wrath of God, but to experience the communion and fellowship and, and, and dwelling, the closeness of God. He's going to come to us and dwell with us. Uh, no one comes to the Father through me except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. There is an exclusion factor here. And this is what separates us from the Jews and from Islam. That unless you, Jesus says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. Uh, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Who sent him? If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. Jesus is the deciding and separating factor between all of the things. And we, you know, you hear people say, well, Islam and Judaism and Christianity, we all worship the same God. Well, yes and no. I mean, in a sense, it's the God of Abraham. Okay, I'll take you that far. But is the, are the, will the Muslims say we worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, world without end? No, we don't worship the same God. There's a very distinct difference. And that's what separates us from the Jehovah's Witnesses and from the Mormons. They do not confess the Trinity. It's, the, it's one of the first and strongest measures of Orthodox Christianity is what do you confess about the Trinity? And that separates the Orthodox Christian from many, many others who just want to believe in wave your hands God. Okay. We don't believe in a wave your hands God. We believe in a very specific God who is revealed. God who has spoken to us many ways and many times through, in, through times. But now he has spoken to us through his son. And it is, the, it, is, it is his desire to glorify his son that's behind everything that's going on. So we, I want us to think about this. Um, this has been an idea that's, that has uh, really taken taken a hold of me or I've, I've seen this more clearly in the last couple of years and I'm just starting to see everything in terms of the Trinity and you know your personality missions everything that happens is happens because of what's going on in the dynamic relationship of the Trinity and how that story is playing out how the Father is going to glorify the Son in world missions and he's going to give the whole world to Jesus and he's going to give them to him nation by nation and person by person and country by country and that's going to glorify the Son and the Father wants to do that and that's missions and, okay, every, everything 
works out in terms of the Trinity. So let's look at the, a few things here just to get us started uh, in John 17. And we look at the we look concerning the father that we take confidence in Christ. One, this is the it's printed out for you here. You can follow this. I'm finally here to the outline. That was my introduction. Um, we're uh, the, concerning the father. We take confidence in Christ's oneness with the father. Because the Father has determined all things perfectly, and He will glorify His Son. Okay, that's we can take confidence in that. When you this, this is a much it's a great measure of confidence we can take from that. We can take encouragement concerning the Son, because the Son has perfectly submitted to the Father, and the Son has accomplished everything perfectly, and He will glorify the Father. And that's true. That's going to happen. That we take great encouragement from that. And then concerning the work of the Spirit in the church, we take comfort in Christ's power in the church because the Spirit is working all things perfectly and he will certainly bring all the elect to glory. So those are kind of the three points that I want to look at. And then we'll, we'll scan through all 12 verses three times, picking out uh, what it says about the Father, what it says concerning the Son, and what it says about the work of the Spirit in the church, how those work. So first, concerning the Father. We take confidence in Christ's oneness with the Father. The Father has determined all things perfectly, and he certainly will glorify the Son. So we look, if you scan through these verses, just for what they tell us about the Father, we see things like this. The Father glorifies the Son. The Father gives the Son power over all flesh. The Father gives the Son all who are His. They belong to the Father first. And the, Son, the Father gives them to the Son. The Father appointed work on earth for the Son to do. The Father shared glory with the Son before the, before the world. The Father sent the Son into the world. And the Father is one with the Son. Now, we take confidence in Christ's oneness with the Father... The Father has determined all things perfectly. He will certainly glorify the Son. When we look at the gospel through the Trinity, from the John 3.35 side of things, we understand that the Father is determined to glorify the Son, and He has done so from all eternity. The act of creation itself is part of God's contrivance to glorify the Son. The Father loves the Son, and He wants to glorify Him. And He says, how can I glorify my Son? I know. I'm going to create a universe. And I will give this universe to my son and that will and it will be his glory. And the son says, you know, I will receive it from you and I will glorify it and I will return it to you. So God makes the universe and the son receives it from the father and he rules it as the father tells him. And since creation falls through the sin of man, now we actually get a surprise extra kind of glory for the son. Uh, if cre- now, this is, we get a little speculative here, but there are creations, there are theologians who will say, just imagine if the creation had not fallen and there had been no bride to redeem for the son, uh, would creation still have been the bride for Christ? I think creation would still, the father still wants to glorify the son and you could probably still think of creation as uh, Christ's bride in some sense. And there might even have been, we're on very speculative terms here. There might even have been an incarnation. The son may even have taken on flesh in order to glorify uh, creation and render it back to the father. I don't know how that would have worked. But it, and the Bible doesn't say, but it's not necessarily excluded. I, I, think, uh, I think that this is a possibility. It, but it goes back to the idea that the father has been determined 
to glorify his son. And the way he wants to do that is to give him a creation. He gives him a universe. And he says, I'm going to give this to my son and he is going to rule, redeem it and rule it, uh, whatever is necessary. If the son had not needed to redeem this fallen universe, how would we know about the mercy of God? Mercy requires somebody to show mercy too. If there had not been a fallen universe, we wouldn't know about God's mercy. So it's a unique glory for the son to redeem sinful man. Uh, the angels in heaven who have uh, always enjoyed God's presence and given his glory and, and uh, celebrated him in his holiness and his power and his goodness, there's something that they lack because they don't know his mercy and his forgiveness and his long-suffering and his patience that only a sinner like me uh, can, uh, can enjoy. There is a revelation of the character of God that, uh, you, you know, you hate to say it requires a fallen world, but the fallen world shows an aspect of God's character that would never have been known. There's a new and special and extra glory that comes to Christ because you're a sinner. You know, a lot of people, when they hear... And they read the catechism and they say, what is the chief end of man? And we read that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Boy, that isn't a load to carry. You've got to glorify God. Are you going to glorify God? You've got to glorify him in your job. Oh, I don't know. I'm very good at my job. You've got to glorify him in your family. Woo. Have you seen some of the broken relationships in my family? Uh, you've got to glorify him in everything. You've got to glorify God. How can I glorify God, a God of glory, I'm a sinner, I'm supposed to glorify God. How do I glorify Him? You glorify Him because Christ redeemed you, okay? You are the object of God's mercy. And it is Christ's special glory to show mercy to you. That glorifies God. And Christ uh, receives glory for redeeming sinful humanity and whether or not you've got your family together and got your job together and got all the things in your life, all the relationships healed and everything is just right. Well, oh, 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 there goes my kid. Or, oh, you know, it's like the pressure's on and I've got to glorify God by what? What do you how's that going to do it? I mean, I'm I'm all for reconciled families and, you know, do the best you can. And, and yes, there may be a sense in which that happens. But listen. The real glory to Christ, the real way you glorify God is that he died for your sins. That is Christ's glory above all. And the fact that you are a redeemed sinner is a special glory to Christ. The Father takes everyone who is his and he gives them to the Son. And the Son takes them from the Father and he redeems them. And then he sanctifies them. He brings them to glory. And at the end, he gives all things back to the Father and glorifies the Father. That's what's going on. Um, many students of Scripture have pointed out that all the way... Oh, let's look at this. John 13:31. Uh, you don't have to turn there, it's, but it's an amazing verse. It's at the Last Supper. It concerns the... In John, they're not, uh, he doesn't do the supper the same way. He has Judas uh, leaving... And when the disciples are in the upper room at the Last Supper, Judas leaves to betray Jesus to his enemies. And in John 13, 31, in one breath, the apostle tells us when he talking about Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. In one breath, he connects those two with grammar. 
when Judas goes out to betray him, then Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Many students of Scripture have pointed out all the way through John's Gospel, the glory that the Father gives the Son is strongly associated with the cross. It's the cross, the most shameful end of a human life. By a wonderful reversal, the cross, the very moment when all the threads of Christ is the very moment when all the threads of Christ's glory meet. It's when the betrayer betrays Christ that Christ says, now I'm glorified. Now I go to the cross. Now I'm lifted up in human shame, but in divine glory. And when people see me portrayed there, dying and bleeding on the cross, redeeming a creation, rendering it, uh, rendering it back to the Father, that's the Son's glory. The Son's glory is to die for sinners. And the Father, the Father has determined, I will glorify my Son. He gives the Son a creation to rule. The Son determines to glorify the creation, return it to the Father. And the completely unexpected thing happens. It's Christ's special glory to redeem the world that God has given him by demonstrating dimensions of God's love and mercy and justice that never before were seen. I don't know how those would have happened. God would have found a way, but it kind of took a fallen humanity to show, this, to show the mercy and kindness and forgiveness of God. Um, we're at the edge of mystery here. Uh, but God so loved the world that he gave his son that everyone who believes in him would have everlasting life. But even more wonderfully, the father so loved the son that he gave him his only created universe so that the son might redeem it and rule it and glorify it. And then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So we take confidence in Christ's oneness with the Father because the Father has determined uh, all things perfectly and he's determined to glorify his son. So that's the father side of things. We look at part two here. The, we take encouragement in the son, in the Christ's submission to the father. The son has accomplished all things perfectly. And he will certainly glorify the father in doing this. And if we scan these verses just for what they tell us about the son, we see kind of the other half of many of the, of many of the verses we've looked at already. But we see things like the son is glorified by the father. The son glorifies the father. The Son has power over all flesh. The Son gives eternal life to those He receives from the Father. The Father gives them to the Son, and the Son gives eternal life to them. The Son is sent by the Father. The Son does the work the Father has given Him. The Son shares, has shared glory with the Father before the world. The Son manifests the Father to the world, and then the Son returns to the Father. Now, this whole thing. This is kind of the gospel in short. Uh, we take encouragement in Christ's submission to the Father because the Son has accomplished everything perfectly. Everything that the Father gave the Son, everything the Father sent the Son, the Father gave the Son things to do and the Son did them all and now he's ready to return to the Father. We take encouragement from, the, from that fact. This is the heart of our faith. Christ has fully satisfied the Father in every way. We usually think of this in terms of our redemption. That Christ has fully satisfied the Father's justice on the cross in every way. But that's part, and that's a big part of it, no doubt. But it's everything that the Son has done. Is there anything that the Son was supposed to do that he didn't do? Is there anything the Father gave the Son to do that he did almost but not quite? Is there anything that the Father gave the Son to do and he said, well, that was a little bit wrong, but I'll let it, you know. No. Everything that the Father has given the Son. 
to do. Everyone that the Father has given the Son to redeem. Every part of the Father's perfect will for the Son, the Son has accomplished. Oh, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. If it depended on me, we wouldn't get there. But the Son has done it. Now, some Christians become discouraged because they, they worry that they have disappointed God. They've been disobedient and careless and unfaithful. And, you know, you think, okay, I'm done with that. And I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'm not going to lose my temper. And I'm not going to do these things. And I, I repent. And I'm done with that. God, help me. But then, guess what? You did it again. And I tell you, God must be done with me by now. Well, if it depended on you, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. That's the bad news part of it. Yeah, okay, duh, you're a sinner. Uh, you're not going to satisfy God, and you will not keep him happy. Some, they look, people look at the. Have you ever played one of these egg and spoon races at the picnic where you've got a team, and they've got a spoon, and they put an egg on it, and you're supposed to run down to the other end of the line and hand it all to the next guy, and then he runs back and hands it to this guy, and you run back and forth, and the first team to finish without dropping the egg wins, but once you drop the egg, you're out. Many people look at the Christian life this way. There's two people on the team. Jesus, who did the first part, got you a great big lead and carried the eggs perfectly. And he hands it to you. Now you've got to finish. And if you know if you don't make it, you're going to disappoint God. And he, oh, he almost made it. He could have made it, but somebody, you know, you didn't. You're out. No, that's wrong. That's not the way it is. There's one person on your team, and it's not you. Jesus did it all. He carried the whole. He carried the spoon, and you're just cheering. Because he completely satisfied the Father in every way. And you don't have to carry it. You dropped it anyway. It's not going to be any good. The Son has perfectly satisfied the Father in every way. Everything the Father gave him to do, he did. God is fully pleased. He's completely satisfied with all that the Son has done. And Jesus didn't miss anything. God does not look at Jesus on the cross and say, well, pretty good. But I will wait and see how Mike or Ellen or Jeff and how they do on the rest of it. Okay, Jesus got you this far. Now, will you be faithful? Oh, don't don't tell me that's it. That's not the gospel. That's horrible. The gospel is Jesus did it. It's finished. And his glory is to redeem the likes of you because you can't carry that egg on that spoon and you can't finish the course the way you the way you would like to. And we take encouragement in Christ's submission to the Father. The Son has accomplished all things perfectly, and He is going to glorify the Father. And the glory of the Son is to save sinners. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. The healthy, they don't need a physician. But He came for you. And that's the good news of the Gospel. Is that He came for you. And He is glorified because you are a sinner. And He saved you. And this shows a love and the mercy of God, if you didn't need saving, if you were good, if you were able to carry the egg on the spoon, then what glory would that be to Christ? But he's saving you. Because you need it. And he loves you. And this is what the Father has given him to do. And he did it perfectly and finally and completely. And there's nothing left. And so we live in response to that. The glory of the Son is to save sinners. What a now, I need to live right. And I, you know, I, I need to, to respond to that. But if I think that pleasing the Father depends on, whether, on my record here, then I need to get it all right, that way is misery. That way is doubt. 
That way is discouragement. Well, we take encouragement because the Son has fully satisfied the Father in every way. There's nothing that the Son was supposed to do that he didn't do. And he fully accomplished, accomplished our redemption. Any questions on that? I don't want you guys to miss this one at all. I want to start. I've got plenty of time. I don't have to be anywhere until 5 o'clock. And we have, that is... That is what we need to remember. I mean, what a, what a gift. What a great thing. This is Christ's glory. You glorify God in Christ, not by being good, but by being a helpless sinner whom Christ has saved. That is Christ's glory. You're not going to add to his glory by feats of personal holiness or accomplishment or the way you've got your family or the way you do your work or the way that none of those things add to the glory of Christ because the glory of Christ is fully expressed in his dying for sinners. Judas goes out to betray him and Jesus says, now I'm glorified. Okay. We take encouragement from Christ's submission to the Father. The Son has accomplished all things perfectly and he certainly will glorify the Father. Now, concerning the Spirit, we take comfort in Christ's power in the church. It doesn't talk about the Spirit here directly, but it's the Spirit who works all things perfectly, and he will bring the elect to glory. And so it's the Spirit of Jesus who comes to us. It's the Spirit of Jesus who lives with us. The Father and the Son come to all those who believe in Christ, and it's the Spirit at work in the church. So that's why, okay, I've got, this is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So even though we're not talking about the Comforter here or the Helper who has come, John uses that. That language in this section, but uh, we scan these verses for what they tell us about the Spirit's work in the church, and basically we see things like those who are called belong originally to the Father by His creation. He chose, He selected, He from all eternity elected those whom He would give to His Son. Those who are called belong to the Father. Those who are called are given to the Son for His glory. Those who are called are given eternal life by the Son. Those who are called come to know the Father as the one true God, and Jesus Christ is the one whom the Father sent. Those who are called know the Father's name. Those who are called keep the Father's word. Those who are called know the Father is the source of all the Son has. Those who are called form a community where the Son is glorified. Those who are called become one in a way that is like the oneness of the Father and the Son. Oh, I don't get that one at all, but that's that's what it says. Uh, none of those who are called are lost except Jews, the one whom the scripture foretold. Now, we remark that salvation is first of all God's doing and not ours. Verse two tells us the father gives Jesus the power over all flesh. And with that power, Jesus gives eternal life to as many as the father has given him. This is, I mean, John and Calvin were just like this. They agreed together that it's the Father who is sovereign and he has chosen those who he will choose. And because it is God's choice, we can take all kinds of encouragement and strength and confidence and comfort from this. If we see the, Father, the transaction this way, that Jesus is giving eternal life to as many as the Father has given him, the exchange is between the Father and the Son, and what are we? We're just like currency in this in this deal. It's like, okay, I've got some money in my pocket. And the money in my pocket doesn't say, go to McDonald's, buy, you know, a meal. Uh, the money in my pocket has nothing to do with that. If I choose to go to McDonald's and I make the exchange, it's between me and the clerk at McDonald's, the money's got nothing to do with it. It's along for the ride. In a very important sense, you and I are along for the ride. The Father owned you to begin with. He chose you. 
the father decide to give you to the son. The son takes you and does what he wants to with it and gives you life. And what are you? Your currency. You're, along, you're, you're just part of the exchange between the father and the son. The father says, I'm going to make a bride for my son. And, and uh, I'm going to give the bride to my son. And the son is going to receive the bride. And he glorifies the bride and finishes the bride and, and, uh, glo- and renders the kingdom back to the father. Our part in that is, you know, passive. It's not our business uh, to make this transaction happen. There's no, nothing in here about man's search for God. You know, is the engine that drives the whole universe um, uh, how man is searching and seeking for God? And Okay, we feel that way sometimes. But that's because God is at work. You know, I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew it was he who was seeking me first. Okay, so when we are seeking God, when we feel like uh, I'm searching and seeking and, you know, it's first of all, God who is who has worked in us. It's those who belong to the father that he gives to the son. There's nothing here about man's search for God. Uh, you don't have to strive and labor to find God. And then by the force of all your faithful determination, persevere by your mighty strength. You might as well say the dollars in your pocket have been contriving altogether to, all their lives to have you spend them at McDonald's. The dollar doesn't teach you how to spend it. And those who are called in Christ do not prevail on God to save them. Now, in the mystery of things, it does feel like we seek God before he finds us and that we have to cling to God with all our might in order to persevere to the end in our faith. And that's what it feels like. But we're not called to live by the our appearances or by the way things seem to us. We're called to believe God. And he says, I have chosen you. I have picked out you. You belong to me. I gave you to my son. He has received you. And nothing, nobody I've given him is going to perish or fall out of his hand. He's going to keep you to the end. Now, it's going to feel like you have to strive and keep and, and persevere. And God, that's part of the gift that God gives you. He gives you the gift of perseverance. He gives you the gift to hold on tight. We are called to believe God. And we can be thankful that John 17 teaches us to take comfort in Christ's power in the church. It's the Spirit who works all things perfectly and will certainly bring all the elect to glory. Now, there's one application here that, uh, that I want to make. And that is... Um, the comfort and encouragement and confidence that we take in all this, to me, it's very freeing. It is, I don't have, I'm not, you know, afraid I'm going to drop something. And it gives me the courage to walk into a situation where I don't know what's going to happen. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be good. I have to go say something to somebody that's going to be hard. And I don't know how they're going to answer me. And there's a good chance that they'll just flip me. And drop me on the floor, and I'll look like an idiot. Now, that's not easy to do, but you know, I don't care. You know, I'm dead. Uh, Christ is going to redeem me. He's got, the, he's got this thing finished, and it doesn't depend on whether I'm successful or not. I'm just supposed to go. Just like Jesus was supposed to go into the world, like the Father told him, and teach and say and do the things the Father gave him to do, and then be glorified when this guy goes out of the room to betray him and make sure he gets nailed to a cross and then dies a horrible death. Now, how many want to be like Jesus? I mean, that's what we say. How many want to go to the, cult, go to the cross? You're going to have to go to the cross in a relationship where you're kind of afraid to say something to somebody. You're kind of 
you, you know, I, there's, there's a, uh, one of my dear friends uh, has a, uh, see, have you heard these uh, uh, character, uh, ever taken these personality profile kind of things? Uh, some people are lions and some people are golden retrievers and some people are, have you heard these, these animal kind of ones? Well, he's a golden retriever, wants to make everybody happy, and she's a lion, you know, and he is afraid to talk to her because she'll bite his head off. Uh, and so they're, you know, in the, in the complicated situation of their, of their deal, he's all the time trying to figure out, well, I know I need to address her about this topic, but I'm afraid that she'll say this. So what I need to do is do some research so I'll have answers to all her problems, and then I'll be equipped, ready to go in and listen. You'll never... I mean, you study all that, she's going to say something else. You are going to go in there and get whooped. But that's okay. That's okay. You are invincible in Christ. Because he, has going to, he gives life to all whom the Father has given him. So what's the worst that could happen? It helps me sometimes to think about, well, what's the worst that could happen? You know, I'm not in jail. I'm not being whipped for Jesus. I'm not, you know, I'm not being, you know, so, okay, I can go talk to this person. What's the worst? You know, I may end up not knowing what to say. I'm not real quick in conversations a lot of times. And on the way home, I think, oh, that's what I should have said. I'll say that next time. But next time it's a different question. You know, I've got lots of answers saved up for, for situations that already happened and probably never will. But it's okay. You know, we take confidence in the fact that this is, not, you know, I take a great relief in knowing that the gospel is not just about God's love for the world, because sometimes I can't see why he would love me. And at some point, he's got to give up on this thing, because I don't deserve that kind of love. But that's not what the gospel, that's not, that's just one part of the gospel. And that's a nice, wonderful part of the gospel. But the other side is the Father loves the Son. And he has given all things into his hand. And everyone whom the Father has owned and possessed, he's given to the Son. And there's not one that he misses, and not one whom the, whom the Son teaches to believe in him that will be lost. And it's between the Father and the Son, and I'm just currency in the exchange. And to me, that is a huge encouragement. It's not up to me. It's about the dynamic of love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit from all eternity. They have loved and glorified one another. And we're part of that. What a, what a great, great encouragement. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And uh, we pray that you will continue to glorify your Son. That you will not uh, leave us. Uh, you will not forsake us. You, we see the promises in your word. We call on you to to make those, to fulfill those and finish those, that we might see the great work of Christ in our lives and that we might contribute to his glory. For you have determined to glorify your son overall. We want to see that happen in our lives, in our community, in our families, in our world, in all places, that the son may bring all things together and render them to the father and uh, that we might uh, forever enjoy the glory uh, that you have uh, uh, given to your Son. We pray this in the strong name of our Savior Jesus and ask you to hear our prayers. Amen. I guess we stand now for the, uh, our closing hymn.